Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering the end of Kings. We are going to be covering 2 Kings 17 to the end of 2 Kings, which is chapter 25, almost 200 years of history. Which during that time period, in one Come Follow Me week, we're going to talk about the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians and how the ten tribes become lost. And then in the same week of Come Follow Me, we're going to talk about the Babylonian captivity and the fall of the southern kingdom, which is over a hundred years later. Now, there's going to be a lot of history here. And to make sense of the history and see the bigger picture, we've got to go back to Abraham. Abraham is the hook or the nail upon which the whole Old Testament hangs. And you have to understand the essence of that Abrahamic covenant. And that is that Heavenly Father needs someone to help take care of all of his children. And he chooses Abraham and he says, look, I'm going to make a deal with you. And he gives them this list of things to do. Among that list are things like, make my name known. If you will make my name known in a strange land, if you will bless them with the blessings of the priesthood, make my name known so that you bless all the families of the earth with salvation and eternal life. If you will do that, the Lord says, I will, and he gives them a whole bunch of promised blessings, and they're all kind of P words. I will preserve and protect you. I will give you power. I will give you all the blessings of the priesthood. I will give you a posterity that is not numbered. And I will give you a place, a physical place to live. So all of those blessings come to Abraham and his descendants if we will make the Lord's name known. Now, why does the Lord put Abraham right in the center of the known world? I mean, if you look where the Lord placed Abraham... You've got all the world empires surrounding you in the ancient world. You've got Egypt, you've got Babylonia, Assyria, Greece, Rome, and boom, right in the middle is Abraham. And that's because that's the best place where they can influence the world. But here's the problem. If the world influences Abraham, then Abraham loses all of those protective blessings. And that's the point we're making today. We're going to watch Israel walk away from God, and then we're going to watch Judah do it. Now, where are they going to go? Let me remind you where it was promised that they would go. If you turn back to Deuteronomy 4, which is kind of Moses's farewell plea to Israel, the repetition of the law, he repeats everything that God gave him. And he says, verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you, that you will soon utterly perish from off the land wherein you go unto Jordan to possess it. You will not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And then Moses says, the Lord shall scatter you among the nations. That's where they went. And the reason that's where they went is because that's exactly how they wanted to live. The Lord says, as soon as you are like the world, as soon as the world has so completely influenced you that you just want to be like the world, then that's exactly where you're going to end up. And so he scatters them 
among all the nations. Now, that's exactly what Nephi understood. So Nephi comes into the picture after the northern tribes have been taken, after the kingdom of Israel is conquered by Assyria, and right before the Babylonians are about to conquer the southern kingdom. Nephi writes, and he says in 1 Nephi chapter 22, Wherefore, the things of which I have read are things pertaining to things both temporal and spiritual. For it appears that the house of Israel sooner or later will be scattered upon all the face of the earth and also among all nations. See that emphasis? They're going to be scattered among all nations. And then he even speaks specifically about the kingdom of Israel. He says in verse 4, And behold, there are many who are already lost from the knowledge of those who are at Jerusalem. Yea, the more part of all the tribes have been led away, and they are scattered to and fro upon the isles of the sea. And whether they are, none of us know, save that we know that they have been led away. And then again in verse 5, And since they have been led away, these things have been prophesied concerning them, and also concerning all those who shall hereafter be scattered and be confounded because of the Holy One of Israel." For against him will they harden their hearts, wherefore they shall be scattered among all the nations. With that in mind, if you go to chapter 17 of Second Kings, which is our first chapter today, now we're going to get into all this history in just a minute. I just want to give you a big picture reminder of what's happening. As it explains why they were taken captive, notice the emphasis on the fact that they became just like the world. Verse 8, they walked in the statutes of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out. Verse 9, the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God and built them up high places in the city. They set up images and groves on every hill. They burnt incense in all the high places. They wrought wickedly. And then this statement, verse 15, they rejected God's statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were around about concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. In other words, they did the very thing the Lord told them not to do. When you go in and possess this promised land, do not be like the nations around you. And that's exactly what they did. Therefore, they can't save the world. They can't help the Lord bring about his eternal purposes. And so he scatters them to the nations that they wanted to be like. Now, the lesson for Latter-day Saints, we are modern-day Abraham. We have picked up that mantle, and it is our responsibility to make the Lord's name known in all the world. And as long as we make his name known, all those protective blessings will be ours. We will be preserved. We will receive the blessings of the priesthood, and we will have his power with us. But if we become like the world that we're trying to save— then we can't do what Heavenly Father needs us to do, and He will find someone else to do it. Yeah. How can you save someone if you're not in a position to save them? It's like if you have no means of pulling the drowning victim out and up, they will pull you down and under. 
And so that's the message today. We've got to keep that in mind as we go through this history. So let's pick it up with the story of Hosea and Hezekiah and the end of the northern tribe. Now, Judah's going to last for another hundred years, and we're going to watch them try and hold on to covenants. We're going to see some good kings. Hezekiah will be a wonderful king. And Hezekiah is going to be the model of the Abrahamic covenant because his stand against the Assyrian army is an absolute proof that God can protect us. Judah was a fly that stood up to the elephant of Assyria. And Josiah is a wonderful king who brings about some wonderful reforms, but in a few cases goes a little bit too far. But man, he is bless his heart for trying to bring Israel back. So because Hezekiah and Judah were trying their very best to keep the commandments, they are blessed and protected. So there's an example of when we are righteous, we are protected, and when we want to become like the world, we lose those protections. That's good. That's a great introduction, Bryce. The only thing I would really add to that whole introduction, and this is just a small detail, is just verse 17 of chapter 17. And I find this really fascinating that we're talking about this now in the context of everything that's happening in the United States. Look in verse 17. They, meaning Israel, caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. Now, what was that? There was infant or child sacrifice in the ancient Near East. Uh, often it's credited to this god Molech. Whether they're sacrificing their sons and daughters to Molech in this verse, I don't know. But it seems to me that the author of Kings, that whoever this historian was, is not a fan of child sacrifice. And I think when children are being harmed, it seems to me, I mean, look at verse 18, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. I think there seems to be something in here about the helpless and that Jehovah is the God of the helpless, specifically children. And we read some of this with the New Testament authors, and Jesus gives quotes where he says things like, hey, don't hurt the little ones, or what is the kingdom of heaven like? And then he takes a child and he brings the child to the forefront and says, such is the kingdom of heaven. And so I believe that. I believe that the God of the Old Testament loves children. And if you're going to hurt children... You you have a short millstones, yeah, I, millstones I, <laughs> and necks and water. Yeah, I just I really feel passionate about the innocent and the helpless, and this battle is raging in America, and I think that this is very poignant in Second Kings seventeen. Mormon points that out among the Nephites, who are also the Lord's people, who are going to be slaughtered abruptly. In chapter 1, he says, there were sorceries and witchcrafts and magics, and the power of the evil one was wrought upon the face of the land. And then again in Mormon 2, he says kind of the same thing. He says, there were murders and magic art and witchcraft, which was in the land. And I wonder if he's referring to that walking through the fire and child sacrifice. And I wonder, I think there is a significant connection to Israel did it, and they were wiped out. The Nephites did it, and they were wiped out. Pay attention, Gentiles in the latter days, and don't make the same mistakes. Yeah, it really does seem to me, Bryce, that how we take care of the most vulnerable among us is at the heart of the Old Testament concept of justice. If we take care of the weakest among us, then we have the Lord's help. But if we're going to not do that, how can Jehovah be our God? How can Jesus Christ be our king if we don't have justice? And I think it all starts in our homes, and then it extends to our, our wards and our communities. 
So 2 Kings 17 is the end of the northern kingdom, as Bryce talked about. Verse 20, and the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of the spoilers. That's going to be the Assyrian Empire in 721 BC, if you want to put this on your historical map. That's when it happened. It says, verse 21, he rent Israel from the house of David. And verse 22 says, the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam. So this idea of this false worship all the way back from the time of Jeroboam to the time period of the author, when the author is giving this story, they're tying it all into Jeroboam and remove them out. And then verse 23 is the breadcrumb where it says, so Israel was carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. So that tells us what at least when the author wrote it. My take on this is that the author is writing this either at the time of the exile when the Jews were taken to Babylon at that time or at the end of the exile, somewhere in that space. Now, the author of First and Second Chronicles is going to give you more information as to when he or she wrote that text. From the best we can tell, the book of Chronicles was written in the 5th century BC. So, after the Jews return back from the exile, and they come back and they build the second temple, and it was during that time period. So when is the author of Kings writing this? Probably during the exile when the Jews were taken to Babylon. But we don't know. It just says unto this day. But the author is giving us a, a clue here. So Kings is one account of the story of the kings, and Chronicles is kind of a second account. Yeah. Now in verse 23, I want you to notice... Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. He had been warning them and warning them and warning them. Now, I want to point out that Hezekiah will extend a chance to end it differently. Hezekiah will give them an out. Now, that's not in this week's Come Follow Me, but it's in the counterpart in Chronicles. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, this is Chronicles' account of Hezekiah, where Hezekiah becomes king in Judah. Now, he is one of the very best kings of Judah. He's the one that will stand up against the Assyrian army and be preserved miraculously. When he comes to power, he cleanses the temple. He reinstates the worship of Jehovah in the temple. Now, in chapter 30, after Hezekiah rebuilds the temple... He sends an invitation to all of Judah, his kingdom, but also all of Israel, the northern kingdom, to return to the temple. And listen to this promise. I'm going to read from 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 1. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters unto Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, those are the chief tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel that's about to be taken captive that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. Now listen to his letter. Starting in verse 6, we have the letter that Hezekiah wrote them. He says, Ye children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. See, that conquest doesn't happen in a day, and it had already begun. And Hezekiah is saying, there's an out. Even now, there's an out. Verse 7, be not like your fathers and like your brethren, which trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, who therefore gave them up to desolation as you see. Now be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord." 
and enter into his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if, now this is the promise, if ye turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return unto him. That was the invitation. As the Assyrians are breathing down their necks and about to take them captive forever, Hezekiah says, come to the temple. Come worship in the temple. Come back to your covenants of the temple and all of this will go away. Unfortunately, verse 10, they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Now, here's an interesting little twist. Not everyone laughed and mocked. There were a few who heeded the warning and left the northern kingdom and went to the southern kingdom. Among them, look at verse 11, were people from Manasseh. And I've wondered if this is how Lehi's ancestors got to Judah. Is it possible that Lehi's ancestors heeded the warning and got out of the northern tribes before the Assyrians came in and conquered them, and that their descendant, Lehi, will get out of the southern tribes right before the Babylonians come in and conquer them? I wonder if the Lord is trying to say, I can preserve even families who come to the temple, worship the Lord, and make him their king. If Israel's going to fall, well, I can save a family here who will heed the warning. If Judah's going to fall, I can save a family and send them to America and preserve them. I think that's part of the message. Now, the reason I point this story out is I'm going to send you to Jackson County, Missouri, and section 97 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Even in the heat of the Jackson County mobs, after they have come and tarred and feathered the church leaders, the Lord says, I'm going to give you an out. And in section 97, verse 10, he says, build a temple. Build a temple right here in Jackson County. Verse 11, he says, build it as fast as you can. And then he promises them that they will escape. Well, the Jackson County saints never built the temple. They never got started on the temple. And they were taken out of their lands, much like the northern tribes were taken off their lands. Do you see the connection? Do you see the power of our covenants and the power of the temple to save us? And I think that's one message we need to add to this week's Come Follow Me is Hezekiah's invitation to come back to the temple may very well have saved the northern tribes from being conquered. Excellent. Before we leave chapter 17 of 2 Kings, just a note on some of the complexity of what's going on in verses 24 to the end. So if you look in verses 24 through 34, we read that lions come among these people due to their false worship, and that's in verse 25 and 26. We read that the king of Assyria requests that a priest come to instruct the locals on the right way to worship. That's 2 Kings 17, 27. And so they do, but then there's this complexity. In verses 30 through 33, the people, the locals, worship the Lord, but they also worship their personal gods from their native lands. And so 
I think what we're talking about in this chapter is kind of what we talked about with Naaman, the Syrian, when Naaman asks to take dirt from the land of Israel back to his homeland because he realizes who Jehovah is. There seemed to be this idea that each land had its God. The king of Assyria realizes that, yeah, he's going to take these people from Israel, but he also wants these people to worship the God of the land. So that's why he sends a priest, and then they worship the Lord, but they also worship their personal gods. And it seems to me that the author of this text is saying that they're doing it wrong. They're not fully devoted. Now, does this apply in our life? And I think for me, it does all the time. Like, I believe in Jesus, and I want to follow him, but are my loyalties 100% or are they divided? And I think that's a personal question we all have to ask. And I think the author of 2 Kings 17 is trying to say, no, we have to be fully committed. And if you think about the covenants we make in the temple, one of them is, are you all in? For me, that's really the story of the hero's journey. The hero has to make the decision, no, I'm 100% in. Jesus seems to invite his disciples in the New Testament, are you guys all in? And so I like that as a way to read it. Once again, the author of the 17th chapter says, you know, they didn't listen, that's verse 40, and so they did this even unto this day. And, And it talks about this idea in verse 41, that our faith really does affect our kids and our children's children. And I actually see this in my life as I'm watching, we just had our first grandbaby, Bryce, I think if it was a race, I'm definitely losing to you, but it's not a race. But as a father, doesn't it bring you great peace, Bryce, to see your grandchildren being raised like how you raised your kids. Like it's got to be a great sense of peace. It is. But Bryce, the opposite is horrible, isn't it? I mean, I can't even imagine seeing my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren going astray. I mean, it would be a great source of distress. And so I really see verse 41 as that urging of, hey, how you treat your children and how you raise them is going to ripple in time. So that's essentially the 17th chapter. The 18th chapter, from here on out, so from chapter 18 to the end of Kings, the focus is on Judah. So Hezekiah is a king in Jerusalem. He's number 13. He's their 13th king. (laughs) I love it. You've got this list. It's perfect. He's this king in Jerusalem. And this story is also in the core of the Isaiah material. So it's a couple times in the Old Testament, and I'm a big fan of whenever I read a text and I see, oh my goodness, this is being repeated, it's probably an important thing. And so Hezekiah is doing these reforms. It says in the fourth verse of chapter 18 that he's removing these high places, breaking the images, and cutting down the groves. And then it says that he break in pieces the Nehushtan, or the brazen serpent, that Moses had made. It seems to me what we're reading in this fourth verse is that there was a, the the brazen serpent, if you remember from Numbers 21, was the pole with the serpent on it that Moses raised up to heal the Israelites. That was put, we believe, in the Holy of Holies, and Hezekiah is pulling it out. So it says that he break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses made, and then it says in the fifth verse that he trusted the Lord and nobody was as great as he was. It says, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Why? Verse 6, because he claved to the Lord. Verse 8, he's pushing out the Philistines. And in the midst of all this, the king of Assyria is taking out all the cities in the north. 
And it says in the 12th verse, because the Israelites were being bad, they were transgressing the covenant. And then the Assyrian army is going to march all the way to Jerusalem and lay siege to it. And we know historically that this happened, that Sennacherib and his armies laid siege to all these cities around Judah. It says in verse 13, all the fenced cities. But we also know from historical records that Sennacherib was unable to take Jerusalem. He lays siege to it. He can't take it. And I like to call this Hezekiah's stand. It's where he takes a stand against the Syrian armies, and there's this public information officer of Assyria. I call him Assyrian's PIO, and his name is Rebsheka, and he stands up on the wall, and he gives a speech to the people of Jerusalem, and he says, hey, listen, if you guys surrender to us, everything's going to be great. Let us take care of you. It's going to be just great. (laughs) He points out that, hey, have any of the gods of the other nations saved their people? Yours isn't going to save you. So just give in. We're going to take you. So just let this happen. It's that same pleading that you're going to see from the Gadianton robbers in 3 Nephi chapters 3 and 4. It's that same idea. Just give in to evil. It's inevitable. Everyone else has fallen. You're not going to be any more preserved than they were. Yeah, I mean, look what he says in verse 29. Rabshakeh says, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He's not going to be able to deliver you. And then verse 30 Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Now, there's some conflicting things here. You see, if you look in verse 25, Rebshekah says, Am I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. So on one hand, in verse 25, Rebshekah is acknowledging Jehovah's sovereignty and saying that Jehovah has sent him to take out the land. But then in verse 30, he says to not trust in the Lord. I find this contradiction interesting, and it's just a side note, but we see the same thing with Korahor, where Korahor says, nobody can know the future. And then later he says, this God that you speak of that's going to redeem mankind will never come to pass. He will never be born. Korahor, how can you say that if you can't know the future? And so I think sometimes when people use rhetoric to attack faith, they do trip themselves up in their own contradiction. So verse 25 and 30 are a contradiction here. It says in verse 26 that as he's speaking to the people, that the servants of King Hezekiah say in verse 26, speak, I pray thee to thy servants in the Syrian language. It's actually the Aramaic in the text, but it says in the King James, speak unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it and talk not with us in the Jews language. Why? Because we don't want the people to be scared. And Rabshakeh continues and he just says, no, I'm going to speak in your language because his purpose is to cause fear. His goal is to instill fear in them. And so I think this whole story is really at the heart of so much of the message of the Old Testament. Then in chapter 19, it becomes personal with Hezekiah. It's now Hezekiah's struggle. And they send this letter to Hezekiah, and they basically say, we're going to destroy you. Now, Hezekiah reaches out to Isaiah the prophet. So we have this interesting dynamic with Hezekiah and Isaiah and the Lord, and then Hezekiah and the Assyrians. In other words, who are you going to listen to? Yeah, and it is a beautiful battle within us. You have a very real, powerful enemy outside who's saying you should fear and give in, and then you've got the reassuring whisperings of the Holy Ghost inside saying, no, 
be not afraid. That's what Isaiah comes back and says repeatedly. Verse 6 of chapter 19, be not afraid. You know, Bryce, this reminds me of the story of the Tree of Life. You have the Tree of Life and Lehi calling to them, but then you have the building. And Nephi, doesn't Nephi say something like, we heeded them not? We heeded them not. The difference between the people who partook of the tree and stayed and the people who partook of the tree and left. Look at chapter 18, verse 36, talking about the Jews, it says, but the people held their peace and answered him not a word. I think that's the equivalent of Nephi saying, we're not going to listen to these guys. We heeded them not. And you'll find, interestingly, that you brought up Korahor, you'll find that same phrase in Alma 30, where, no, we heeded them not. We just didn't even listen. We didn't respond. I think a modern application of this could be, if we're so focused on people that are denigrating faith, and we read their posts, and we listen, and we engage, and we constantly stew over it, I think that that can be a problem. I'm certainly not telling you to not listen or to not read opinions of other people, but there seems to be something in Nephi's message. If we're focused on the tree of life and we're heading towards it, the building is going to be shouting. It's always going to be there. The noise is constant, but where is your focus? And heed them not doesn't mean don't have compassion on them or don't listen to what they're saying or don't understand or have a desire to help them and to love them and and improve their lives. That's not what it means. It means, are you going to get off the path because of what they're saying? You can love them and you can acknowledge them and say, I'm not leaving the path because of what they're saying. And that's the point. It's a really intense battle, this 19th chapter, where Hezekiah is torn Everyone that's opposed Assyria has lost. I mean, they have, they're undefeated, right? Yeah, and, and Hezekiah walks into the temple. He takes the letter, and he lays it before the Lord in the temple, and he basically says in 14 through 19, Lord, he can do all of this. He can do everything that he's threatening. He can annihilate us, and we're just asking I love verse 19 of chapter 19. It's the plea of every righteous person who faces a formidable foe. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. So the Lord speaks back and basically says, I will put my hook in his nose that Assyria is nothing. Don't be afraid of them. As mighty as they are, Assyria is nothing. I will put my hook in their nose, my bridle in their lips. I will turn them back the way they came. Now, that was an incredible promise that required a great deal of faith, because as you looked out the window, there's hundreds of thousands of Assyrian warriors, and they'll go back the way they came. But that's the promise that the Lord gives us. Hold on to those covenants and he will be with us. Let him choose how he fights the battle, but he will be with us. One historian said that if the term terrorism could be applied to any regime, it would have been applied to the Assyrian method of conquest. They would. They would put hooks in your jaws or your nose if you got to live, and they would take you far away. They would make you slaves. They would torture you. There's a lot of stuff we put in the show notes on this because it's pretty graphic stuff historically, how the Assyrians treated their captives. 
And one of the things that Reb Sheka is trying to do is to instill massive fear in any city that revolted against him, any city that didn't immediately surrender. They were given horrible, horrible punishment. We're going to talk more about Assyria when we get to the story in Jonah, because Jonah is going to be told by the Lord to go and preach repentance to them. And Jonah is going to say, Lord, I don't want to preach repentance to them. I want them to go down. These guys are really awful. The Assyrians make Darth Vader look like a nice guy. I'll just say it that way. These are really bad guys. And frankly, if I was Hezekiah and I was praying to the Lord, I probably would have expected the Lord to say surrender, because at least if you surrender, some of you will live. And so for the Lord to say, no, he's not going to come into this city. Look what the Lord says in 2 Kings 19, verse 31. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. So in these verses, the Lord essentially says they're not going to get in. Now, historically, this actually happened. We have this prism. It's called Sennacherib's prism. It has other names. It was discovered in the halls of the Assyrian kings. And the way it would work is there would be this scribe that would write down all the neat things that the king did, and it would be full of the exploits of the king. And on Sennacherib's prism, it mentions that the Assyrians are not able to come into Jerusalem. His own account on the prism mentions that he conquered 46 strong cities and forts, and that he captured over 200,000 people. But then it says, quote, I made Hezekiah a prisoner in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Now think about that. If he would have taken Jerusalem, he would have said, I took Jerusalem. But instead he says, I trapped him or I made him a prisoner like a bird in a cage. All sides acknowledge that the king of Assyria was unable to capture Jerusalem, because if he did, he would have mentioned it. And so what historians and those that read scripture don't necessarily agree on is who gets the credit. The author of 2 Kings is going to say, well, the Lord gets the credit. The Lord is the reason why they were unable to get in. But other historians look at this and say, well, there was a plague that hit the Assyrians. Perhaps they got the Black Death or the bubonic plague or some kind of plague, or maybe it was dysentery. We don't know. But the author of 2 Kings 19 is crediting the Lord. So hopefully that kind of gives us an understanding of the incredible nature of this prophecy and that this is a pivot point. Chris Stewart wrote a book called The Miracle of Freedom, Seven Tipping Points That Saved the World, and he acknowledges this story as one of the seven tipping points. And the reason why he does, and his argument is pretty sound stuff, the Assyrians, everywhere they conquered, they would take you and they would move you. They would relocate you. And their goal was to take away your language, take away your culture, take away your religion, assimilate you into the empire, take the men that they let live, stick them in the army, and then go send them out to fight more wars and just kind of recycle you. In other words, they don't view you as human beings with your own culture and language and those things. It's just, what can we do with you to use you as a tool? 
And that's what they did to the 10 lost tribes. The 10 lost tribes are taken by these same guys and they're kind of recycled and, and used and relocated and they've lost their culture. And historians look at this and say, if this happened to Jerusalem, would we even have a Hebrew Bible? And if we don't have a Hebrew Bible, then what would have happened 700 years later? Would we have even had Christianity? And the historians look at this and say, the Hebrew Bible influences the beginnings of Christianity and the beginnings of Islam. Two major world religions perhaps would never have happened if Assyria had taken out Jerusalem. And so this is a pivot point in world history. This man, Hezekiah, when he goes to the Lord and he trusts the Lord and talks to Isaiah and the Lord tells Isaiah they're not coming in. Because of that, this has ripple effects for 700 years. And actually today, we are the beneficiaries of Hezekiah's faith. 2,700 years later, these events still have relevance and affect us today. And let that stand as a monument in all of our hearts, that when God is your king, when you are faithful to covenants, miracles happen in your life, that you can stand against the Assyrian army, you can stand against addiction, you can stand against debt, you can stand against the challenges that face us. When God is with me, I can do mighty things. Yeah. To end the story, Hezekiah is told that the Lord's going to defend the city. If you look in chapter 19, verse 35, it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians, a hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they rose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. And then the rest of the chapter talks about how Sennacherib goes back to Assyria and that his, his own children kill him. Now, the next chapter is where Hezekiah is told he's sick and he's told he's going to die. He has this rash and he prays and he says, Lord, remember me. And so the Lord says, you know what, Hezekiah, I'm going to give you a bonus life. I'm going to give you 15 extra years. And so he, he is given that. And then he sees this shadow that goes back 10 steps. Verse 9 of the chapter talks about it going back 10 degrees. We kind of explain that in the show notes. That's a sign given where the shadow moves and he's able to be told that he's going to live. And then the end of this chapter is really interesting to me. I think that it's important historically. Look in verse 12. The king of Babylon is going to send a letter to Hezekiah and say, hey, how you doing? And they communicate back and forth. And at some point, either the king or his servants from Babylon come. And verse 13 says that Hezekiah showed him all the precious things of his house. And it seems to hint that he's showing him the treasures of the kingdom. And Isaiah reprimands him. Isaiah in verse 14 says, who are these guys? Or what said these men? And from whence came they? And Hezekiah said, they are come from a far country, even from Babylon. And then Isaiah gives them this prophecy in verse 16, where he says, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days will come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon and nothing shall be left. So Isaiah is giving this prophecy of the exile in 586, and that the temple, it seems to me that he's prophesying of the temple being destroyed. He says in verse 18, thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's a really hard prophecy. I mean, if I'm Hezekiah and I hear this, I'm kind of sad. And so that's why I'm referencing verse 19, because I have two question marks written here. Because it says, then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, right after he's given this horrible prophecy, good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And that's literally what it's saying in the Hebrew. It's not a mistranslation. And frankly, for me, if a prophet came to me and said, hey, Mike, 
your greatest hopes are going to be dashed and your children are going to be taken away as servants to your enemy, um, I would say, I don't like this. I mean, when Nephi is given that prophecy about the descendants of the Nephites going astray, he's not happy with that. And so I don't know. I, I look at this and say, did he really say that? Is this just the historian of Kings putting that in there? I don't know, but I certainly would not have said verse 19. I don't know what to do with it, but it's there. Now, the next bit, verse 20 says, all the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, how he made a pool and a conduit or a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So the author is using other sources and referencing them. We don't have the sources that he's using. We don't have the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah that he's using, but he's referencing this. What verse 20 is talking about is the pool of Siloam, which is this pool that was inside the city walls. Hezekiah, having foresight, knew that as the Assyrians were coming, that he needed to secure the city. And the city of Jerusalem was on a high plateau with valleys around it. It had walls. But the one thing the city didn't have was a secure source of fresh water. In the ancient Near East, if you have the high ground and you have walls and you have fresh water, you're going to be okay. And that was the one weakness to the city. In fact, we read in the account of Samuel that when Jebus, or Jebus as it's written in, in Samuel, was taken by David, that possibly David and his armies used the tunnels whereby they got the fresh water to approach it and take it. And so Hezekiah realizes this is a weakness. And the tunnel that his men built today is referred to as Hezekiah's Tunnel, and it was built in preparation for the Assyrian onslaught. And what it did was it accessed the spring of Gihon and brought fresh water into the city, and the tunnel is a 583-yard-long tunnel that took the water with a 6% gradient underground from the Gihon Spring and brought it into the Pool of Siloam. And we're going to talk about the Pool of Siloam later when we get to Psalms, because that pool is going to have liturgical significance. This fresh water is going to be a symbol for God, his presence, the temple, kingship, and God's power to redeem us. And so once the, he had built that tunnel, now the people of Judah have in Jerusalem a source of fresh water that's secure. But the problem is the Gihon Spring, which is outside of the city in the Valley of Kidron, is exposed. And so the locals of the city of Jerusalem will tell you this, that Hezekiah covered the Gihon Spring so that you didn't know where it was. And by covering it, the enemies of Jerusalem could not access it. Second Chronicles 32, 1 through 5 and verse 30 seem to hint at this as well. If you do a careful reading there, it seems to hint that Hezekiah blocked the source of the Gihon Spring and he covered it up in order that the enemies that laid siege to the city could not have access to it. Now, why is this important? I think one of the reasons why verse 20 in 2 Kings 20 is in there is because it's giving Hezekiah credit. He was a man that had foresight. He was a man that did everything that he could do to prevent the Assyrians from coming in, but at the end of the day realized that they were more powerful than he was. But because he had done everything he could do, the Lord then gave Hezekiah the revelation, hey, the Assyrians are not going to come in here. And so, Bryce, do you see this as kind of, once again, a dance of we do everything we can and the Lord will bless us? Exactly. 
You can't see Hezekiah's preservation against the Assyrians as all God. You've missed the point if it's all God. It has to be this, but we're going to do everything we can to preserve our city against the enemy. However, we can't do all. So we'll do all that we can do and then let the Lord do what we can't do. You see that all over the scriptures. Nephi says, look, I, can't, I don't know how to build a boat, but I do know how to make tools. It's a very common scriptural motif that we need to row our boat as far as we can, trusting that the Lord will come and do what we can't. It's pretty amazing, even the tunnel itself, the idea that in the ancient Near East, 700 years before Christ, people are underground digging a tunnel with iron tools and they come from both sides, and we really don't know how they did it. There's a lot of people that think maybe above the ground they were pounding instruments to try to give them a sound to where to approach, but it's a pretty awesome engineering feat that they did this, and I got to just credit Hezekiah. He probably had some really wise advisors. So the 21st chapter of Second Kings is Hezekiah's son, and his name is Manasseh. Manasseh is definitely portrayed as a bad king. Verse 6 says that he made his son pass through the fire. That's this idea of child sacrifice. He built high places. He made a grove. That's verse 3. And built altars that were to other gods. We're even told that he did, quote, abominations and did wickedly above all the things the Amorites did. That's in the 11th verse of chapter 21. And so because of this... The Lord says in verse 13, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And then it says, it says this a few times, that Manasseh shed innocent blood. When it talks about Manasseh shedding innocent blood, I just want to reference this. The tradition is that Manasseh marries Isaiah's daughter, so he's related to Isaiah, and Manasseh kills Isaiah. And if you read the extra-biblical book called The Ascension of Isaiah, and we link this stuff, chapters 1 and 5 of The Ascension of Isaiah, Isaiah is told by the Lord that the spirit of the enemy, the spirit of Satan, will possess Manasseh, he'll do horrible things, and that Manasseh will kill Isaiah. And so according to tradition, and this is also in the Jewish Midrash and the Jewish Talmud, According to these traditional sources, Manasseh seeks out the blood of Isaiah. Isaiah hides in a cedar tree, and Manasseh finds him and cuts him in half. And so today, there are stained glass windows that portray Isaiah with a saw in his hand and in a tree. This is not in the Bible, but we're just referencing some of these sources. If, if this stuff interests you, go to the show notes, and we even link some of this stuff so you can see some of the translations of the Ascension of Isaiah. I happen to believe it. I happen to believe that Manasseh, when it says he shed innocent blood, I think we're talking about Isaiah. I think we're talking about prophets. And so if you're a king and you're killing prophets, I mean, every time kings do this in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon, bad things happen. And so with this... We read that because of Manasseh's sin, the Lord says, I will bring evil upon Jerusalem. And that's verse 12 of 21. So we have a righteous king, Hezekiah, and then his son, Manasseh, is one of the most wicked, and then his son, Ammon, is also a wicked king. Now, luckily, the son of Ammon is going to be one of the great kings of Israel, who it will be said of him, there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart 
and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the, all the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. And that king is King Josiah. So the author of Kings is really putting Josiah on a pedestal. Josiah is going to be the model of how kings are supposed to be. And so with that in mind, let's talk about what he does and what it means. I want to point out that Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. There's something significant in the number eight. Now, if you look at the symbolism of numbers, number seven is the number of complete or whole or perfect, because God finished the earth in seven days. Eight, then, is the number of starting over, renewal, or giving a second chance. That's why we baptize eight-year-olds, because it's that renewal, it's that start over. That's why there were eight people on the Ark of Noah. It was a start over. It was a renewal. It is very significant to me that Josiah is eight years old when he began to reign, and that Israel is given a chance to start over, and that's very much what Josiah is going to do. He's going to take them back to the law of Moses. He's going to take them back to the Passover. He's going to take them back to the Jehovah that led them out of Egypt, praying that that will be enough to preserve the destruction that's coming. Unfortunately, it won't be. But bless his heart for doing all that he could to bring Israel back to Jehovah. We read that, like Bryce said, he's eight years old when he began to reign, that's verse 1, and then it says in verse 8 that Hilkiah the high priest found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. There seems to be these renovations that are taking place in the temple. If you look at verse 5 and 6, it talks about this, that they're fixing the breaches of the house of the Lord, and they find this book of the law. And so because of this book that they find, the king, when he, it's read to him, verse 11 says that he rends his clothes, and then he says, go and inquire of the Lord for the people concerning the words of this book. And so they do. Hilkiah the priest goes to this woman, the Navia, she's Huldah the prophetess, that's verse 14, and she says that because of this, verse 16, the Lord says, quote, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Why? Because they've forsaken me and they've provoked me to anger. Now, most biblical scholars read 2 Kings 22, and they see this book of the law as being the core to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, just because I'm quoting scholarship on this doesn't mean I'm right, doesn't mean I know I wasn't there, but... Deuteronomy has evidences of being redacted and being edited multiple times, both before and after the exile. And we've talked about this earlier when we talked about Deuteronomy. We've talked about it also when we did our podcast on 1 Nephi 1-6. through But according to many scholars on this, the reformers of the 7th century are using Deuteronomy to do major reforms in the religious practices of the people of Jerusalem at this time. And the time period is probably around 622 BC. And the reason why we say that is because if you look in verse 3 of chapter 21, it says, it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that these things are going on. Well, the 18th year of the reign of King Josiah, so now he's 26 years old, is 622 BC. So right before Nephi and Lehi come on the stage in the Book of Mormon and start explaining religion as they see it, we see 
20 to 30 years before Nephi, we see these reforms. And so the bulk of the reforms that Josiah is going to institute are contained in the 23rd chapter. But the 22nd chapter is the introduction to who he is, that they find this book of the law, that he rends his clothes, they go to this Navia, this prophetess named Huldah, and she is, she's a prophetess, and she gives a prophecy that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And so after this, he rends his clothes and he gathers the people to the temple, and they make a covenant in the third verse of chapter 23 before the Lord, and they all stand and they promise to live the rules of this book, this book of the law. Like I said, I think this is the book of Deuteronomy, and with that in mind, let's look to see what the reforms are. So let's go to verse 5. It says that he put down the idolatrous priests, whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places, in the cities of Judah, and in the places round about Jerusalem. Okay, we'll get back to that. Verse 6, he brought out the grove, or the Asherah, from the house of the Lord. So there was this Asherah, which was a tree, and he's it's in the temple. It says in verse 6 that it's in the temple. So he brings it out unto the brook Kidron, and burned it at the brook Kidron, and stamped it to powder, and cast the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. So there's that. Then we get to verse 7. It says that he broke down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah, for the grove. So there's that. And then it says he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where they burned incense from Geba to Beersheba, and break down the high places. Then it says um, that he, verse 10, defiled Tophet, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom. What were they doing there? Verse 10 tells us that they were making their children to pass through the fire to Molech, so we got child sacrifice. Go to verse 13. The high places that were before Jerusalem that were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and for Chemosh, or for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. So he's basically getting rid of these other gods. Verse 14, he's cutting down the Asherah again, the groves. And then it says that he burned the high places. Again, it talks about that he burned the grove. That's at the end of verse 15. So he's doing all of these things, these reforms, and these religious reforms extend even all the way up into the north country. Remember, Israel's been scattered, 721. This is 100 years later. So 100 years later, after the people that the Assyrians had planted in the land and those that were there left, these groups of people that lived in Israel had syncretic forms of worship, syncretism, this idea that different gods blended together. Whenever I talk about syncretism, I talk about chocolate and peanut butter. When we make Reese's peanut butter cups, we're kind of blending these ideas. There was a syncretic kind of worship up in the north, and Josiah's reforms are going to extend all the way up into the north. Verse 15 tells us this, the altar which was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam set up, he's going to burn down. Jeroboam, remember, was the king of Israel up in the north. And then it says this, verse 19, all the houses also of the high places which were in the cities of Samaria, that's the north, that's Israel, which the kings of Israel made to provoke the Lord, Josiah took those away. And then it says in verse 20 that he slew all the priests of the high places that were there upon the altars and burned men's bones upon them and returned to Jerusalem. So he's actually killing these priests up in the north. 
and he's destroying all these other forms of worship. And then verse 21 says that he's to keep the Passover. So they keep the Passover, and then they're getting rid of verse 24, the wizards and those that work with familiar spirits. And then it says what Bryce read earlier in verse 25, that there is no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart. So he's definitely venerated in the text. And then after he does all this, verse 27, the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight as I have removed Israel and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen and the house of which I have said, my name shall be there. So even after he does all these reforms, the Lord says, I'm still going to have Jerusalem destroyed. And so what happens to Josiah? Josiah is actually meeting the Egyptians in battle in the 29th verse, and it says that he's hit with an arrow, and he's killed at Megiddo, which that's a place that's north of Jerusalem. And so his servants carry him in a chariot from Megiddo, bring him to Jerusalem, and bury him in a sepulcher. And that's the end of Josiah. Now, that's what the Bible tells us about Josiah. And I just want to say this. Go to the podcast that we did on 1 Nephi 1-6 through and listen to about 20 minutes of that where we talk about the reforms of Josiah. And then also listen to the one that we did on Deuteronomy. I think for about 20 minutes in Deuteronomy, we talked about the reforms of Josiah. My take on Josiah is this. I don't think he's all bad or all good. But what I see him doing, or what I see the author of Kings telling us that he did, is that he's doing radical reforms, but I don't think that all the reforms are good. One of them is this. He's getting rid of all other forms of worship, all other altars, all other high places outside of Jerusalem and making Jerusalem the only place. And I don't see that as particularly the right thing. And one of the reasons why I see that is because when Lehi leaves Jerusalem and he's eight days outside of the city, he builds an altar to God And his sons, Laman and Lemuel, kind of have a freak out. And they say, you can't do this. And Nephi makes a point to tell us that Laman and Lemuel are of the same mind and heart as the elders of Jerusalem. And so what we have in the Book of Mormon is this tension between the religious feelings of those at Jerusalem in 600 BC and Lehi. And if I have to pick sides, I'm going with Lehi. But the point there is that the restoration balances this, that if we don't have a Book of Mormon, if we don't have a restoration, then sometimes the Bible's going to drift a little bit one direction, and then it's going to drift a little bit the other direction. Sometimes it's too little reform. Sometimes it's too big a reform. And the only way we can find balance is if we have the divine intervention like the Lord provided with the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon balances the reforms of Josiah and tells us in which areas did he go too far. Now, Josiah did a wonderful thing. He really did bring them back from how far they had strayed away from the law of Moses. But the point is, we need the Lord's help in correcting those types of things so that we don't go too far. That's the position we're in as Latter-day Saints, is we hold the book in our hands that balances all of these truths in the Bible that are swinging one direction and then the other direction. And thank goodness that we have that balancing book. Yeah. I also understand if I was Laman and Lemuel and everybody was on board with one way of doing religion, I see how culture can kind of sweep us away. We get swept up in culture and 
we miss things. I see this even today where we live in a world, Bryce, where there's culture sweeping people up in these movements. And sometimes we have a prophet who stands and says, hey, this is the way we go. And sometimes culture is going in the same direction as the voice of the prophet. But oftentimes the prophet will stand and say, no, this is the way we need to go. And culture is moving in the opposite direction. And as Latter-day Saints, we have to make a decision. Are we going to go in the direction where culture is heading or are we going to listen to the prophet? And so my take on that, at least when it comes to this historical record, is Lehi is standing in contradistinction to some of these ideas. And Deuteronomy does say that God doesn't have a body, essentially, and that the temple is the place where his name shall dwell. And Deuteronomy emphasizes that God cannot be seen. All three of those things Lehi stands in contradistinction to and says, no, God can be seen. He does have a body. I've seen him. Oh, and by the way, it's not just his name that's in the temple. Like, this God that we worship is a real person. And then we have another lens we can read this stuff with, and that's the story of the brother of Jared, where he sees the spirit finger of the Lord, and the Lord says, do you want to see more? And he does. And the Lord says to him, I'm going to take upon myself a body. And these ideas of Deuteronomy, you know, God not having a body and not being able to be seen, are going to have echoes in Jesus's life when Jesus stands before the Jews and says, I'm the son of God. And they don't even know what he's talking about. And even today as Latter-day Saints, when we say things like Joseph saw the father and the son and they're corporeal, they have bodies, to a lot of people it doesn't make sense because the reforms of Josiah and the Deuteronomistic reforms that teach things about God that are incorrect are still having effect today. And so I, I do see the book of Deuteronomy as being complicated. I see Josiah as a complicated figure, but the author of Second Kings is going to cast him in a good light. And like I said, I don't think he's all good or all bad. I think most reformers do some really good things, but not everything they do is great. I mean, even Martin Luther, if you read his writings, he has some really good reforms, but boy, does he have some things. He went that, too far on some areas. Yeah. There's just things that I read Martin Luther and go, no, I don't agree with you here. So I think that's the big picture with this chapter. Mike, you might be interested in Joseph Smith's commentary before he gave section 43 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which talks about the role of the prophet. Joseph said, soon after the foregoing revelation was received, a woman came making great pretensions of revealing commandments, laws, and other curious matters. And then he says this, as almost every person has advocates for both theory and practice in the various notions and projects of the age, it became necessary to inquire of the Lord when I received the following. I really think what Joseph Smith is saying here is the reason we have prophets is because advocates in both theory and practice of the various notions and projects of the age have a tendency to drift us away from divine truth. Don't let an advocate for the age push you away from a divine center where prophets are trying to lead us. And so that's kind of this idea of Lehi standing to correct what could be seen as an advocate for the age in going a little bit too far. Yeah. A second witness to the fact that, yeah, sometimes we do go too far. Another thing I want to add about the reforms that I think adds complexity to the argument is verse 5 of 2 Kings 23. It says that he put down the idolatrous priests. The text is actually saying that he's putting down or making an end, putting to an end the Kumarim. 
And there are some scholars that see this as the Kemarim are the Melchizedek priests. I find it interesting that the last stand of the Book of Mormon is by 24 people who defend a place called Cumorah, which could be read as the place or the hill of Melchizedek. It could be read that way. Another thing that's interesting is verse 7. I think this adds complexity to the argument where it says that he break down the houses of the Sodomites. That text actually can be read a couple different ways. The Sodomites could be read as the holy ones. It just depends on how you vowel it. It's the same. It's HaKodeshim. And so if it is, and the person who added the vowel points later in the 5th century AD were radically changing the meaning of that verse, what if that's going on? In other words, what if not all the reforms of Josiah are on board? Because remember, just because you're a king and you're doing reforms, you have a whole host, a whole retinue of servants that are putting these reforms in place, using your name to do them. There's a lot of things the king just doesn't have control over. What if the servants of the king and their zeal to put down some of these individuals are actually putting down some of the good guys? So I'm just trying to lay down some of the complexity of 2 Kings 23. I'm going to read the reforms of Josiah, and I'm going to read the book of Deuteronomy, not just by what it says in the text, but I'm going to read it through the lens of the Book of Mormon. That's my approach. And by doing so, I think what we see is that it's not all as it sounds. And frankly, even if you don't use the Book of Mormon, if you just use biblical scholarship and you read the Bible and you read the New Testament, there are scholars that say that the reforms of Deuteronomy went too far. These scholars, having not read the Book of Mormon, say that the New Testament authors are trying to correct some of these ideas. You see, in the New Testament, these authors teach that God the Father had a son and his name was Jesus. And there are some New Testament texts that talk about things like he can be seen. And then you have Jesus saying things like, guys, it never was about the location of the altar. Like, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. The Son of God is the one that we should worship. And like Bryce said, we should make him our king. So Josiah does all these reforms, and the Lord says, verse 27, I'm still going to remove Judah out of my sight. That has to suggest that you're not there. You're not where you need to be. And I love Josiah, I do. But we have to consider the fact that even with all of his reforms, he was told that Judah is still going to be taken captive by the Babylonians. Yeah. So Josiah is killed in battle. He's replaced by his son in verse 30, which is now our 17th king of Israel, who will be replaced by his son, Jehoiakim. He's now our 18th king of Judah, starting with Rehoboam in verse 34, and then he will be replaced by his son in chapter 24, verse 6, Jehoiachin, and he's now our 19th king. And it is during his reign that the Babylonians come in and begin their siege of Jerusalem. He will be taken into Babylon, and then there'll be a puppet king put in place who is probably his uncle, and then that will be the final king of Judah, king number 20, and we call him Zedekiah. In the JPS translation of the Tanakh in 2 Kings 24, 17, this is going to read a little bit different than the one in your King James. So I'm going to read it, and then we'll read the King James. In the 17th verse, it says, The king of Babylon appointed Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, 
king in his place, changing his name to Zedekiah. The 17th verse of 2 Kings 24 in the King James reads, The king of Babylon made Mataniah his father's brother king in his stead and changed his name to Zedekiah. Kind of makes it sound like it's the king of Babylon's uncle. But that would put a non-Davidic descendant on the throne of David, which we don't believe happened. We believe that Zedekiah was a Davidic king. Absolutely. So in the 24th chapter of 2 Kings, verses 8 through 17, it talks about Jehoiakim and his assumption of the throne as the Babylonians position themselves to destroy Jerusalem. What we think is going on here is that Jehoiakim's father, and his name is Jehoiakim, that he rebelled against the Babylonians, and so they're coming to put him in his place, but when they get there, he dies. And so this 18-year-old is then on the throne, and then in 597, this is what's called the first exile from Judah. And so in 597, we read in these verses in 2 Kings 24 that the king of Babylon comes and he besieges it in verse 10, and then it says that they took him and his servants and his princes and his officers to Babylon. Now, Jehoiakim's going to come up later at the end of 2 Kings 25, the last chapter of Kings, but at this point, this is the first exile, the first exile at least of these leaders And then it says in verse 13 that he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord. Was this when the treasures of the house of the Lord were taken? We've talked about the ark in earlier podcasts. You know, we don't know. It doesn't give us all the information. But what it does say is that not only do they take these individuals, but I would say maybe the literates and some of the elites, it says in the 14th verse that they take the men of valor and the princes, and then it says that none remain save the poorest sort of the people in the land. Now, who's in the land? Well, this is where the Book of Mormon picks up. This is where Lehi picks up and says, hey, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed if we don't repent. The author of Kings is going to take the position that if the kings of Judah paid their tribute to the Assyrians, all would be well, but they don't. They rebel and they don't pay their tribute. Now, could this also be tied into this idea of not repenting? I mean, if I'm invincible and I think, hey, everything's going to be all right, I don't have to pay my taxes, I don't have to do stuff, that could be viewed as sin as well. So there's these different voices trying to describe the destruction of Jerusalem. And these last two chapters of Kings are records from the authors, these historians that are trying to put the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple into some kind of context. They're trying to make sense of this. And I think one of the big messages of these books, First and Second Kings, is that we have long lists, a chronicle in the north and in the south of all these kings and very few righteous ones. And so there's a lot of history here. This is like we just mentioned. This is where the Book of Mormon picks up. But this last king is this individual named Zedekiah, and it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord in the 19th verse. He's this 21-year-old monarch, and then in verse 20, it says that he rebelled against the king of Babylon. My take on that is that he's not paying the tribute to the Babylonians, and this is where in 1 Nephi 1, Nephi even tells us what year of the reign of Zedekiah is it? He gives us the day. First year of the reign of King Zedekiah. First Nephi chapter 1, verse 4, it came to pass in the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. And so his rebelling or not paying tribute, and also on the basis of the remarks in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it seems to be apparent that Zedekiah is going to join a coalition 
that included other groups, the Phoenicians, and maybe even some of the kingdoms in the Transjordan area, to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And so he is going to lay siege to Jerusalem. We read that it's happening in the 11th year of King Zedekiah. So this is like 11 years after 1 Nephi 1. Zedekiah is about 32 years old when this happens, and it says in the fourth verse that the walls of the city were breached on the ninth of the month Tammuz, and that's going to be in the summer. There are three months in the, in the summer months, and Tammuz is the first one, so we think this is right around June. And today, even today in Jewish tradition, they actually observe the 17th day of Tammuz as a fast day marking the breaching of the walls. And so the walls are breached, and they destroy the temple. The temple was burned. That's verse 9. He burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house. So with the first siege, they took them. Now they completely burn the temple and leave it not standing at all. This is the sad ending of the kingdom of Judah. It ends with the burnt city, a burnt temple, and a burnt king's house. We can't emphasize this enough. The destruction of the temple is a traumatic event in the Bible, and much of the Hebrew Bible can be read in light of the traumatic events of the destruction of the temple. A huge question in the Hebrew Bible is, Lord, are you still with us even after the temple has been destroyed? What about kingship? What about us? Are we still the chosen people? And the author of First and Second Kings is wrestling with the question, why did the temple get destroyed? Especially after Hezekiah's great stand and the protection of Jerusalem. How can we so quickly just watch the entire city be completely annihilated? If you remember the prophecy that Nathan gave to David, where he said, your seed will reign in this house forever, and you add it to the great stand that Hezekiah takes, and God defending Jerusalem, I think that there were people in Lehi's day that thought, no, Lehi, you're wrong. Jerusalem can never be destroyed. The house of David will always reign. Look, he did it for Hezekiah. And Lehi would be saying to them, no, the Lord will not defend us if we don't make him our king. They take the king. They slay his sons. It says in verse 7. Which isn't completely true, right, Mike? Well, we read in the Book of Mormon that there's this one son of Zedekiah. His name is Mulek. And him and some a group of people flee Jerusalem, and they end up in the Americas. And these people, we call them in the church the Mulekites, these people are going to join with the descendants of Nephi at a place called Zarahemla. Okay, so after Zedekiah is slain, there's two appendices in this final chapter. The first is verses 22 through 26, and essentially what these verses are emphasizing is that there was an administrative overseer of the people of Judah in the land after the king was taken, and his name was Gedaliah. His grandfather had been a high official in Josiah's court, and his father had been in Josiah's court. And so this appendix is trying to put that into perspective, that there were still some administrative acts taking place after the destruction of the temple. Not everyone was taken. And then the second appendix is actually an extension of hope. And that's 2 Kings 25, 27 through 30. I'm going to read it. It came to pass in the 7th and 30th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 7th and 20th day of the month, that the king of Babylon is going to speak kindly to Jehoiakim. It says in verse 28 that he spake kindly to him, and he set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, 
and he changed his prison garments. Now think of Joseph when he's brought out of prison. This changing of garments is a changing of status. And he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. The 29th verse seems to indicate that Jehoiakim is taken out of captivity, his garments are changed, and he's eating bread with the king of Babylon. And then verse 30 says, his allowance was a continual allowance given him of the king, a daily rate for every day, all the days of his life. Maybe Judah's not totally dead, right, Mike? Maybe the roots are still there. And I think that message of hope is going to apply into the apostasy. Even during the apostasy, maybe it's not all gone. Maybe Christianity's not dead. Maybe God is not dead. Maybe the roots are still there, and hence we're going to get a Bible in the middle of the apostasy. We're going to get the founding of America on great moral principles in the middle of the apostasy. Even in the middle of captivity, Judah's not dead. Yeah. And maybe it's going to come back. Maybe that root's going to grow again. That's the hope that this history ends with. I totally agree. I see this as the author trying to say, a Davidic king still lives. Now, as a believer in Jesus, I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I read the Book of Mormon. The Davidic king did live. Jesus is the Davidic king. I love that. Now, notice, at this point in the history, we are exactly where the Nephites end. Now, I know that the kingdom of Judah is going to be given another chance, and that's going to set us up for the coming of the Messiah. And that's great. But the main history here ends in exile. So the northern tribes are taken and defeated. The southern tribes are taken and defeated. The temple is burned. This is a horrible ending. This would make a horrible movie. So standing there and watching the Babylonians completely slaughter the Jews and then burn that temple, and then watching the Nephites be utterly destroyed by the Lamanites— I think those images need to compel the Latter-day Saints to say, we are the final glorious chapter who must learn the lesson they never learned. Mormon cries out and says, and I think this is the solution, one of his final chapters that he writes before his death, chapter 5 of Mormon, he points out what happened to the Nephites and also what happened to the Israelites and the Jews. He says in verse 16, the spirit of the Lord hath already ceased to strive with our fathers. They are without Christ and God in the world. They are driven about as chaff before the wind. This whole experiment with kings ended horribly badly because the only person worthy of being our king is Christ himself. That's the lesson we have to learn. So think about the words here. The house of Israel got scattered. The northern tribes become the lost ten tribes. The southern tribes go into captivity. If God is not your king, if Christ is not your king, if you are without Christ and without God in the world, you will end up lost, captive, and scattered. Therefore, the Latter-day Saints have to pick that up and say, we will end this story on a glorious positive note. Christ will be our king. And I think, yes, that's a literal translation, and he's going to choose when he comes down to be king of kings. But in the meantime, every one of us must choose him as our personal king. So the very next verse is the plea 
Mormon says they were once, and we need to read this as we must be again a delightsome people who had Christ for their shepherd, and they are and were led even by God the Father. If those words from the end of the Book of Mormon and implied words from the destruction of Jerusalem as they now go into captivity don't ring out in our ears, then we've missed the whole reason for studying the Old Testament. It's all about who is your king, isn't it? Who is your king? And will you, Latter-day Saints, learn the lesson that no one is worthy to be king of Israel but Christ himself? If you put anyone else on that throne, either literally or personally in your life, you and the kingdom will end up lost, captive, and scattered. I pray, I hope with all my soul that as you study this tragic ending to the glorious kingdoms of Judah and Israel, that you will realize that we as Latter-day Saints must step up and make sure that God is our king. I leave you with Elder Bruce R. McConkie's poem, that he read in conference, I believe in Christ. We sing it all the time. It's significant to me how that poem begins. I believe in Christ. He is my King. When all of us and each of us say that, we will begin to be the kingdom that they were not, and we will prepare for the kingdom where he will be King. That is the message. We're so glad to be with you as we wrap up Second Kings. And with that, we'll see you next week when we cover Ezra and Nehemiah, the return of the exiles. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.